but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We're going to be playing a song right now. I'd like you to just sit quietly, listen. If you would like to sing along with it quietly, you're welcome to. But we're going to get up loud enough. And I'd like you to zoom in on the words. I'd like to uh, begin this sermon by us all listening to this song and paying attention to these words. I stood in the courtroom The judge turned my way It looks like you're guilty Now what do you say I spoke up your honor I have no defense but that's when mercy walked in mercy walked in and pleaded I stood in the courtroom, the judge turned my way, it looks like you're guilty, now what do you say? I spoke up, your honor, I have no defense, but that's when mercy walked in. Mercy walked in and pleaded my case, 
called to the stand God's saving grace. The blood was presented that covered my sin, forgiven when mercy walked in. I stood there and wondered, how could this be? Someone so guilty had just been set free. My chains were broken. I was declared born again the moment that mercy walked in. Mercy walked in and pleaded my case, called to the stand God's saving grace. The blood was presented that covered my sin, forgiven when mercy walked in. Can anybody say amen? Amen. Come on, brothers and sisters. We were guilty before God. If we had to stand in the courtroom of God, how would we stand before Him? The scripture says, who shall stand before this holy Lord God? If the world only knew the kind of God that we have to deal with. The Philistines were the ones that said, after experience, a traumatic intervention of God, they said, who shall stand before this holy Lord God? How could you and I possibly stand before God? He is holy, 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 and we are guilty. Does anyone feel their guilt? Has anyone been relieved of their guilt? Has anyone trusted the blood of Christ for the removal of their sins? Praise God that in the courtroom, mercy walked in. When I heard this song in Tennessee, my heart just busted. To think that, wow, I'm listening to this song and suddenly mercy busts into the room. Yes, I was at one time guilty before God, helpless and hopeless. But praise God that he sent mercy, that saving grace took the stand for me. Because you and I had no plea with God. We couldn't bargain with him. There was no options. It was only the blood of Christ that could cleanse us from all sin. Paul says to the Thessalonians, When our gospel came to you, it came to you not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with much conviction. Do you have that peace and assurance that you're forgiven? That you have that clean slate that the blood of Jesus has cleansed it all away? Someday we're all going to have to stand before Almighty God. But the Bible says that so that we can have boldness in the day of judgment because perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment, but perfect love, what love is that? The love of God for sinners like you and I that's willing to clear the guilty and apply the blood of his son to us so that we can be saved. The Israelites could not exit Egypt unless the blood was applied on the upper doorpost and the two side posts. And when that destroying angel came through that night, unless the house had the blood, there was no hope but only destruction. And God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, not you see the blood, when God sees the blood. God has seen the blood and is satisfied with the work that His Son accomplished on the cross. Are you satisfied? Is that what you're trusting in? Do you have that assurance? I've been convicted thinking, you know, as I go out and do preaching every Saturday, and I'm going down as we were cleaning from here, and I went down and I said, something's missing in the preaching. And you know what it is? I'm not preaching the cross enough. Shame on me, and I apologize to Sovereign Grace Chapel for not preaching the cross as much as I should be and us in the pulpit that should be. When Paul went to these various places as a stranger, and he went in, like he said to the Galatians, Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? And he speak into people who have been bewitched and fooled by paganism. And he says to them how we set before you graphically 
the sufferings of Christ. Paul says we preach Christ, he said this to the Corinthians, in what him crucified. A Christ without a cross is not a savior for any sinner. Jesus could have come here and he could have been a, a, a Buddha figure. He could have been a Confucius. He could have been any one of these Mohammed rulers or teachers. If Christ had not died, there would be no forgiveness. It's not in teaching that saves us. It's not following in line of Jesus' morality in, in teachings. It's by believing on the finished work of the cross of Christ that now infuses you with something that I also want to draw your attention to. They receive the word not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with much assurance. Could we get the next screen up on the stage? I don't know what happened to my clicker. Here we go. The verse before we were reading in verse 9 of chapter uh, 4 of Thessalonians reads like this. Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Has the Holy Spirit been given to you? Those that received the Word received it with power and with the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason why I want to draw your attention to that verse is because of the following verse that we began with. We don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. We don't need to write to you about this. How many of you were Boy Scouts? Raise your hand. Anybody a former Boy Scout? I think I'm right on this. I was a Boy Scout too. Okay, I'll raise my hand as well. I never got up to the Eagle Scout like some of you guys did. That's a wonderful accomplishment. But one thing that we were taught is when we went camping and we were out in the woods, what was the number one thing that we had to bring with us? Not the canteen, no. Uh, What else? A compass. And another thing that we were advised to take as well was a map. I'd like to say that the, the compass is like the Holy Spirit. When you get saved, you now have direction in your life. You know how to live. There's a change that just suddenly comes over you, and you say, that wasn't me, that's not me, that's not the way I used to think. Something has transformed you. Can you say amen? Has that happened in your life where the compass of God's Holy Spirit has come into your life and given you direction? For to me, to live is Christ. My object of living now is changed. I have a purpose. I have a goal. I have a reason. There's an undergirding. Jesus says, He that hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And when the rains come and the floods and the winds, the house on the rock stands firm. We've got a compass, brothers and sisters. And you know where that compass is directing us? Right to the Lord Jesus Christ. But besides having just the Holy Spirit, we also have the written Word of God, the Holy Scriptures that are able to make us wise unto salvation. We need both of them. Last week we were reading in the first part of 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul says, I'd write unto you these things, and then he goes on to explain what he was writing to them about. Or it could be translating, I'm writing to you these things in instructing you. We need instruction. We need the Word as well as we need the compass of the Holy Spirit. Now we're entering a portion of Thessalonians where Paul is saying, I don't need to write to you. 
I don't need to give you any instructions. You know, when cults are formed because they override people's minds, hearts, and consciences. They want to take over somebody's life. They want to make them to be like themselves. They want to make disciples after themselves rather than after Christ. Paul didn't say that. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We don't need to write to you, Paul says, about the importance. It's important. He says it. It's important. The importance of what? Loving each other. For God himself, no one else, not Paul, not not Timothy, not Silas, but God himself has taught you to love one another. The Bible says in Galatians 6, Let us do good unto all men, but especially unto them who are of the household of faith. If you're born again, you have an instinct within you that makes life different. Jesus had prayed and informed his disciples before his death of something that was going to happen that the disciples in Jesus' generation, those that surrounded him at that time, didn't have yet. So he says in this 1426 of John, the Comforter who is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. So there's this promise that the Holy Spirit, the Father's going to send in his name, who will what? Teach you. He's going to teach you. Paul says we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other. Why? Because verse 8, he had already said, God has given to you the Holy Spirit. You don't need to listen to men in a sense from this standpoint because God is your instructor through the Holy Spirit inwardly. So Jesus is predicting of what was going to happen. And in this context, he's saying to his disciples, this will be the new commandment for you. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. To love one another, that's a new commandment. When I was a member of the Y, I happened to get saved. I was almost 23 years of age. There were lots of, lots of guys, it, it was only men at that time, that went to the Y. And it, it was a different ones that would play basketball, some would run track, some would go, go into the weight room. And I was one of the ones that I did all three, but I went into the weight room. I really never got along with the weight guys. They so, sort of weren't my type, like Brian Roberts sort of guys. Um, <laughs> but uh, I tolerated them to a point by just doing my own my own thing and then walking out the gym. But anyway, you know, as God was using me and God's spirit seemed to be moving in the lives of people, different individuals God was saving. Annie Bo and, and, and Bob Garabini. These were all Y guys and they were all weightlifters. Ron Van Salette, um, Bob Bass, Bessie and his brother Sam Bessie and several others of them. Now all of a sudden we're in the same weight room. This is after a month or two. And we're all fellowship with each other, talking with one another. And you know, someone had said as an observer, he said, I can't believe the kind of love you guys have for one another. What spawned that? Where did that come from? We didn't even talk to each other before. 
But when the gospel was spreading and the Holy Spirit was moving and working in lives, all of a sudden now, we're not just why members? We're members of the body of Christ. We have a union with each other. We're now desirous to love one another. That's what Paul says. We don't need to write to you about that. It's spiritually instinctive. It's not something that you have to gear up for. It's not something that you've got to be going through a class or get a diploma to reach this level. It's something that happens to you instantly upon your conversion, and that begins to grow in you. He calls it the importance of loving each other. How much importance do we put on loving one another? That should be high on the scale of importance of our lives to love one another. For God himself has taught you to love one another. That's how the world is going to know that Jesus was sent into the world and that we are his children and we are saved by him because they see the love that we have to one another. And this is a wonderful time in our day as, as it gets darker and darker in society. They're getting further and further away from the God of the Bible. He's not even existing in the minds of the majority of people these days. This is a great time for us to bind together around the Word of God with the Holy Spirit in us and testifying of who we belong to, the hope that we have, and the joy that we have. We're singing that song about rejoice. It said it eight times I think it says. But I'm thinking, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. There's something that mocks us as Christians that makes us very distinct from those that are of the world. And one of those distinctions is that we've been taught by God. Not the written word. We don't need it in this particular situation. It's instinctively inbred in us that comes with the new birth, and let's look at this verse to show you what I'm trying to say. Beloved, First John, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Who are the ones that really love? Those that are born of God and knows God. Because we, what we know of God, we know that God is love. And when God saves us, that love is transferred to us. His love in me is the love that comes out of me to others. It's born into us by the new birth. First Thessalonians 1.3. Again, how the epistle begins. Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I highlighted this in red by emphasizing labor of love. I've been talking about the instinctiveness of the love that's in us. Now, we're not automated beings as newborn Christians. There is a responsibility that we have. God working in me, but me working in coordination with God. I can do that as a believer. Before I was saved, I couldn't. It took that new birth from above the power of God to draw me to himself. I was preaching yesterday in, in, in this, uh, I'm, I'm standing like here with a microphone and a car pulls up and, the, and there's a lady like seven feet in front of me. And I got the mic like this, I'm preaching the gospel and she's starting to weep like a baby. And I says, get out of the car. 
she got out of the car and I said, you need to be born from above. You need Christ as your Lord and Savior of your life. You've got to trust him right now. You've got to believe on him with all of your heart because God is a God of mercy and he can save you to the uttermost if you would trust him as your Lord and Savior. And if God, and then, then I went around the other side and I talked to the guy in the car and she talked with two of the brothers and I think they prayed with her, praise the Lord, but hallelujah, that God can get the ear of a person and create in them those desires for himself. He's the one that draws. Jesus says, no man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draws him. And right after that, in verse 65 of the same chapter, he says, no one can come to me except it were given to him of my Father. The reason why you came to the Lord is because the Father gave you to the Son. God gifted his son with you. You were drawn by him. You came to him because of the power of God in the gospel that drew you to himself. We rejoice over that. And in that new birth, we have a love for one another. And what we have, the Bible says, what, what do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, you've received it. Why? Because it's been given to you as a gift from God. What is thou that thou hast not received? Now, if thou hast received it, why do you glory or boast as if you had not received it? We glory in the fact that it was given to us by the mercy of God. Praise God that that mercy walked in and that that saving grace took the stand for me. First Thessalonians 3.12 May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Boy, Paul is emphatic, isn't he, about the importance of the love for one another. It starts up about the labor of love. Here we have love for one another. And what we're reading in Thessalonians this morning is the importance of loving for one another and that you would do it more. You have to think of ways of how you can actually express your love to your fellow believers. Not just in this local church. Sure, a bunch of us here are all born-again people. Hallelujah. And we should have a love and a bond between us that is absolutely miraculous. Because I'm sure we all come from different backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, economic backgrounds, educational backgrounds. We all have our own kind of recreation, sports, theaters. We have there's differences among us. But you know, that's insignificant. Because what draws us together is our love for the Lord Jesus and that love that is born in us. Since you have purified your souls, this is Peter now. In obeying the truth, this is the King James, through the spirit, insincere love of the brethren, there it is, love one another. See that word? Not just love one another. Peter says fervently, zealously, with a burning heart and with a pure and sincere heart to love one another. How emphatic is the Bible about loving one another? We always joy in the great truth that God so loved the world. But just think of how much you so love with God's love in you to others. The capacity is given to you. You are capable by God's design to have this love that is born in you, that can burst from you, that can be exhibited in the way in which you live and act in how you treat your fellow brothers and sisters. He saved us not because of righteous things which we have done, 
But because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth or regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. What did we get? The Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us generously. You have an abundance of the Holy Spirit that's given to you. That's what the Bible says. Now you might say, I don't feel like I have the Holy Spirit in fullness. I feel like he just I just got a tincture of the Holy Spirit, just a little drop. Well, that's not God's problem. That's your problem. Because the Scripture says for us to be filled with the Spirit. The Bible says walk in the Spirit. Scripture says to live in the Spirit. We can find ourselves occupied with things that can distract us, can detour us off the path. How important it is that we stay close to the Lord. Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. People get away from God because that's what they don't do. They don't draw near to God. If you're one of God's children, you want to be on His side. You want to be like John, the author of the Gospel of John, who put his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus and heard his heart beating. That disciple, he describes himself, whom Jesus loved. He was filled with love of the love of Christ. And he's the one who writes about the most of love than any than anyone else in the Bible, John. What a wonderful witness he is to us in the stressing of the importance of the love to have for one another. We are, get that, get that line up. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. One in the spirit, that love that we should have for one another. Now, that love is not just Inwardly towards fellow believers, I should say. It's not within the church family strictly. There's other ways in which the Spirit oozes out or overflows the cup of, of our lives in different ways. Because right after this in verse 11, Paul, well, let's read verse 10. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers from Macedonia. Praise God Paul could say that about them, that it was evident that this was going on. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. This would be his, their fellow countrymen. Love them even more, but particularly the children of God he's addressing here. Now verse 11, now he's getting into a practical aspect of the Christian's life. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, Minding your own business, that's what's the quietness that he's referring to. It doesn't mean that we have to be monkish, that we have to just walk around like Trappists. That's not what he's suggesting. He's just saying, mind your own business. Don't be a busybody. Don't feed off of others. Mind your business, so to speak. Keep yourself occupied. How? Working with your hands. Now here he says, just as we instructed you before. Here, I think, is a combination of the Spirit given, being given and the instructions being given, the compass and the map. The map's the Word, the compass is the Spirit, and these two should be joined hand in hand, and they should be one on our right hand, one on our left hand, and we should be utilizing both together so that the life of Christ and how we live should ooze out of us and here, Paul, if you know the epistle of First and Second Thessalonians, one of the issues that's behind the scene, and we're going to have to talk about this next week, is the second coming of Christ. 
That could have been misunderstood to the point of an overemphasis on the imminence of Christ. That Jesus was going to come any minute, any day, any hour. Therefore, people were slack on work. What's the sense of working if Jesus is going to come back again? We might as well eat and drink and be merry. We might as well just relax and and we don't have to work with our hands. And maybe taking advantage of the Christians, of the church, that they would supply them with their needs because they were... They chose to not be employed. Paul is up in arms about this. He's reprimanding them. He'll say later in the epistles, if, if, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't what? Shouldn't eat. That, that sounds quite, quite severe. That's how important Paul is stressing for being due diligent and be occupied with, with labor. So that it says, so that the onlookers of verse 12 says, then people who are not believers, There are people who are believers and there are people who are not believers will respect the way you live and will not need to depend on others. Others, Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. So he's implying that those who were not working were, were begging and living off of what others were earning by their hard work, and all labor back then was with your hands. They didn't have desks and computers and things of that sort. Everybody was active farming and merchandising and everything else, whatever they did. And obviously some of the Thessalonians were taking advantage of the liberty of Christians and living off of them, and Paul is up in arms about that. We want you to be respectful. We want others who look on you, especially the unbelievers. We have a responsibility to the world. I've said before, I heard this from in a preacher saying at one time, there's not just 66 books of the Bible. There's 67. The 67th is you and me. Paul says, you are the epistle of Christ, known and read of all men. People are not going to read their Bibles, but they're reading you. What are you like? What? How, how are you being read by onlookers? Are they seeing differences in you than they do in themselves and others around them? What a wonderful way in which we can magnify the grace of God in the power of God, in the life of God, in our souls that comes out of us. Henry Google wrote that book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. That's what we have. The life of God in me. In me. You are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Well, anyway, these believers obviously were misunderstanding about the second coming of Christ. There was no dates that was given. There was no certainty that was provided to the Thessalonians or anyone else in the Christian community about when the second coming of Christ was to come. It could have been, it could have been momentarily. It could have been postponed. It could have been at some unknown date. Whatever it was, Paul is ignoring that fact for the moment and saying, you need to be working right now. Sometimes Christians have some crazy ideas and, and we could go through church history and you will find different ones that have escaped reality in society because of a grave misunderstanding about the second coming of Christ. We'll have to talk about that more next week. I don't want to, I don't want to go into the next section. But let me summarize this by simply saying that we have the Holy Spirit of God with the Holy Spirit within us. We now are taught to love by God. 
the internal didactic instruction of the Holy Spirit within us, not written, but still very spiritually impressive on us, creates in us a desire to love one another. And that needs to be fanned into a flame. And it can be done when we, as it were, yield ourselves to the Lord. That's why Paul has to say, we urge you to love them even more. There needs to be that encouragement so that we could love one another more than we do love one another. I've said this before, but I think as Americans, we we are so different from the characters of the Bible and the era of the Bible and the people of the Bible. Not just in time, but even today, I think as Americans that are on the Western Hemisphere, we, we, we are so different than I think the way the Bible portrays people and individual people. In America here, there's a lot of individuality, a lot of privacy, a lot of separation, a lot of hibernating from society and from people and from fellow Christians and from church life. But that's not how it ought to be. We are encouraged and we see this communal living that's advised and, and that's encouraged for the Christians to pursue this so that we can feed off one another spiritually, so we can exhort one another, edify one another, and to build each other up in our most holy faith, and most importantly, be urged to love one another. And that love will come out in practical ways as well. When you think of it, love really covers almost all of the bases, for instance. And how could they be loving one another when they were some of them were slack, not working, but simply... What's the word I want to use? Freeloading off of fellow believers. Shame on them. And Paul is reprimanding and it gets more severe because in 2 Thessalonians 36, he talks about them if anyone who is walking disorderly and not after the tradition that you heard of us, to separate yourself from them. If If they're adamant and they're opposed to work, then Paul is saying, that's a disorderly brother you must... Withdraw yourself from that individual. So this is a very strong and it's a very practical point, especially in the day in which it was written and we obviously have to transport it to our day. And how does that apply to me so that I can most importantly know how to live respectfully before the world as they see me as the 67th book? They're going to see like those guys in the Y that were unbelievers that were looking at us and saying, that's amazing how much you guys love each other. And they had seen us there many times before. We hardly chatted a word with one another. Now all of a sudden we're, we're, we're really, you know, talking constantly about the Lord and about salvation. And I don't know if it was me or somebody, but we wrote on, on the, on the floor. This is a good idea for new gyms. If you know of any new gyms that are springing up right on the floor. In chalk, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiate. No, I didn't write that for us. But some verse we wrote there and we left it there. Just so that we could give them more than just the witness of what they saw. There may be something that they read. So praise God we have the Holy Spirit who's able to teach us and does teach us and let us follow our instructor, the teacher of the word and let us be sure to have the, the, the map in our hand as well, the written word of God that's able to guide us in the direction through this wilderness that we're traveling. Let's close in prayer.
Father, thank you for the gospel of your grace. Thank you for mercy walking in, Lord, when we stood guilty before you, hell-bound, hell-deserving, lost, ruined by the fall. Thank you, Lord, that your kindness was manifested and that you poured out on us abundantly the Holy Spirit so that, Lord, we could live a life that would be imitable of our Lord Jesus's so we can follow in his footsteps and so others can look on and see the love that we have for one another. Lord, we pray that you would give us a humble spirit, that we would have a desire to love one another. Lord, I might not be so lovable, but others need to love me nevertheless. So, Lord, help us to to reach out to one another in love and kindness and mercy and display all the graces that you bestow upon us. And, Lord, if anyone in this room doesn't know our Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord, that they would realize that they are in the courtroom and the judge is telling them that they have no defense. There's nothing that they could possibly say other than claiming the blood of Christ, the atoning work that Jesus performed on the cross to remit their sins, to remove their guilt, to give them a perfect standing. Thank you, Lord, that you call to the stand the saving grace, the mercy of God. Lord, we bless your name. We pray that someone today may apply that to their hearts and that, Lord, you would draw them by your spirit and give them a revelation of the love of God through Jesus Christ, the crucified one who bore the penalty of sin in his own body on the cross. It's in his worthy name we give you praise. Amen. Amen. Will you stand?